Hello, Bob here. Now, I have trouble using words like branding and rebranding non-ironically. However, the fact is that my podcast, The Right Show, is about to undergo some rebranding, and so is Blogging Heads TV, the YouTube channel that the video version of the show appears on. So I thought I'd give you a heads up. Starting in late June, the YouTube channel will be called Non-Zero, and so will the podcast. Now, technically, the podcast will be called Robert Wright's Non-Zero, so you'll find it under R in any alphabetical list of podcasts. Meanwhile, my Substack newsletter's name will not change. And since its name is already Non-Zero, that means that we are witnessing a case of brand unification. Three brands are becoming one. My content is becoming less confusing in at least this one sense. So what does this mean for you? Not that much. If you already subscribe to the YouTube channel or to the Right Show podcast, you'll be automatically subscribed to the rebranded version. And by the way, if you're not already subscribed to both, you should take remedial action immediately. And make sure you're subscribed to the Non-Zero newsletter too. Now, I have to say, I will be sad to see the name Blogging Heads fade into the background. I started the Blogging Heads TV website in 2005, along with Mickey Kaus and Greg Dingle, and I will always be proud of our vast and rich archives, which, by the way, will still be available at www.bloggingheads.tv. And actually, for the time being, new content will be posted there in addition to on YouTube, so the site won't immediately turn into just some kind of museum. Speaking of Mickey Kaus, the Friday podcast I do with him will still be in the right show, that is the non-zero podcast feed, and the paywalled after podcast podcast I do with him each Friday will still be available at patreon.com slash parrotroom and also available to paid subscribers of the Non-Zero newsletter. And I very much recommend the pair room. So I close with this guidance. If you see something called Non-Zero and you don't already subscribe to it, subscribe to it. And if you want to rate and review and click the like button and stuff like that, so much the better. Thanks, and I will see you soon in Non-Zero land. Hi, Matt. Hey, Bob. Great How to you see doing? you. Good to see uh, I'm you. very well. Thanks for having me back. Um, it's been a while since I've been on uh, with you. Has been. What, what, what have you been doing? Do you even have a job? What's going on? <laughs> uh, theoretically, I do have a job as a uh, as, uh, foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders. Oh, good. Um, no, I knew that. I knew that. And I even <laughs> know that it, it, it requires for you to uh, give us a disclaimer at this point, I think. Yes. No, thank you. Um, just here. Uh, um, in my own capacity, my personal capacity, speaking for myself, not 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 for the office or for the senator. Though okay. I think some of our some of the views I express will 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 track with will that. happen to eerily correspond eerily, to yes. views that yes. he has expressed, mm -hmm. but not all. Okay, so we're going to talk about uh, well, foreign policy naturally enough, but more specifically the Ukraine war and a piece you mm -hmm. wrote for uh, the New Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, Your old home. I yeah I've long 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 ago. I mean you'd have to do carbon dating to to, 
<laughs> to come up with things I've written here. Uh, but but um, so is it too much to say you were chastising part of the left in this piece for their attitude toward the Ukraine war? I think it would be. I was not intending to do that. I mean, the goal of the piece yeah. was to address some of the the arguments I see coming from the left. So mm -hmm. I would say responding or just but ultimately, I was just trying to to engage in and foster a, a debate about some of these issues, because I think they address some pretty important foundational progressive principles. Did people did any people on the left take it as chastisement? I think some people did, you know, and that's, you know, and they, again, I, I, the response, some both critical and supportive, I've been, um, you know, happy with, you know, it's never nice to be attacked online, but it happens. That's part of this. But in general, I, 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 I find the, the response to be at least helpful to me and how people are thinking about this, where they disagree. Um, yeah, but ultimately, as I said in the piece, and I tried to make clear, um, you know, I think the left is in a, a really interesting place right now in terms of its its size and growing influence on our politics. Um, so I think thinking through some of these questions of, of war and and military force um, and what what you know what part of a foreign a progressive foreign policy those issues play is important. Okay. So the piece had to do with this $40 billion bill for uh, support, uh, much of it military support for Ukraine and some opposition to that on the left. Uh, Bernie, of course, voted for that, as mm -hmm. did almost everyone, which was a, mm -hmm. a source of frustration to the left. Mm -hmm. uh, a number of people, including squad members, uh, drew some heat from the left. And by, by left, we mean kind of the left left. We mean, do we basically mean the socialist left? Is that uh... whatever term one wants to use? But I think the left left might be yeah. more accurate okay. or, or, or works just fine. Okay. Uh, and why don't you just kind of uh, run us through your argument that the bill did deserve support mm -hmm. and that Ukraine does deserve robust military mm -hmm. support from the United yeah. States? Yeah, well, I think the, the $40 billion was one piece of it. I think that a lot of people kind of referenced that because that was just kind of contemporary with when the piece came out. But in general, I think just as I know, I said in the piece, like, you know, supporting Ukraine's, you know, defense of its own country uh, in response to this invasion, um, especially in a way that is, is, you know, not involving U.S. troops, that is, that is being careful about escalation, um, I think makes sense. I think there are certainly, you know, questions we should we should and 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 a lot of people have been asking. I've been asking them myself about how this ultimately ends. Um, there's things we need to think about with you know monitoring and use for these weapons that we are sending to the Ukrainians. Um, a whole set of other questions, which I'm sure we'll get into over the course of of, of our conversation. Um, but you know, for the time being, I think continuing to support Ukraine's defense is is the right thing to do. Okay, and what do you think? Uh, well, well, first of all, why don't you spell that out? There are various ways one could justify mm. it. There are various uh, principles you could say are at stake that we need to defend, for example. Mm. There are different ways of framing it. What's yeah. your way of framing it? Well, first, I think, you know, just the general principle that, you know, countries shouldn't invade other countries, um, pretty basic. 
Um, I think that's one. It's certainly not one that the United States has always followed. And again, I'll just grant at the very outset, there's a whole set of hypocrisies at play here, um, which I've mentioned in, in, in previous pieces and will continue to mention because I think they are really important. And I think they actually seriously undermine uh, America's ability to create or, you know, that kind of actually genuinely rules-based order that I think we as progressives want. Um, I think you know, supporting Ukrainians' right to defend their country um, matters. I think solidarity, you know, as, as a progressive, this idea of solidarity matters a lot to me. So thinking through what I hear from Ukrainians, um, both publicly and privately, that they want for their country um, matters. Um, and that's obviously something that should apply beyond just Ukraine. I think that's something that informs my approach to foreign policy generally. But in this case, I think supporting Ukrainians with military equipment to uh, res to respond, defend themselves against Russia's invasion uh, is right. Okay. And what is your conception of the argument on the left left that you're confronting yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, did the, uh, well, you can address this later, but I'm wondering if the feedback to the piece altered your conception of what the mm. argument is. But but what uh, what in the in the piece, how how do you depict the argument? Right. Well, I think you know I, I I point to two really prominent uh, people who I respect a lot: uh, Lula from Brazil and Noam Chomsky from from the U.S. Who and I think they make two of, I think, what are the biggest arguments. One is that, and I think you, you've you made some, a variation on this argument too, We, um, you know, that there was more should have been done uh, ahead of the invasion um, to put, you know, NATO withdrawal on the table more explicitly, um, that there wasn't enough diplomacy, there wasn't enough or an aggressive or energetic enough diplomatic effort by the United States um, to, to make a set of guarantees that would have averted the invasion. Um, and the second is that there is not enough diplomacy being done. It's not energetic or aggressive enough right now. The United States or President Biden or, or his administration is simply not engaged heavily enough in, you know, finding a diplomatic opening or off ramp or whatever term one wants to use to end this war sooner rather than later. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, I should, as long as you brought me in, I should be clear. I don't oppose mm -hmm. all military aid to Ukraine, but I do. Mm -hmm. You know, I am kind of torn about the whole issue, partly for reasons you mentioned. And, mm. and I think I do have, I, I identify with some of the arguments on the left, left, maybe more than you do. We'll see. But I think I could, I could, yeah. you know, I'd like yeah, to later and, and give and you I a apologize version of it. I didn't mean to misrepresent. I just think. I, no, I you had, didn't say, yeah. you didn't say anything that's untrue, for sure. I, I have, uh, I, I, I do think we didn't do enough to try to negotiate our way out of a war in advance. Uh, but more than that, I, I, I think that we've mismanaged the relationship with Russia over the mm -hmm. past quarter century, big time. And I would agree with that. But see, I, I, I think that relates to the argument from the left in, in important ways to, to understand the way I think they're seeing it. I mean, in, in the piece at time, you know, you quoted Chris Hitchens which for me is, of course, triggering. I mean, you know, you said at the beginning of the piece, not, if, oh, if you were trying to win me over, that's not the way to start, Matt. Uh, I was not quoting him approvingly, though. Well, there was, you know, uh, where's the quote? Is he the one who said, um, 
that yeah he characterized the argument from mm. the other side this was during the uh, you know the iraq war the very uh, very beginning of the during the run up of the iraq war he of course was uh, deeply supportive of that mm. he characterized the opposition to the war in this way quote nothing will make us fight against an evil if that fight forces us to go to the same corner as our own mm. government you didn't explicitly say that that's what's going on with left left now but i kind of yeah. i kind of thought yeah. You almost were implicitly caricaturing the argument that way. Is that well, no, I, unfair? Yeah, no, that's that's fair. I mean, first of all, let's know. I mean, Hitchens wrote that, I think, literally weeks after 9-11. Um, okay. But also, I do note in the piece that that statement that I cited is hyperbolic and unfair. Yeah. Um, but I would like to make sure it stays that way. So I, it's a fair cop to say, yeah, I do see there are some elements of, of, of that that I see. I certainly do not characterize the left response in that way at all. I think it's a very small minority, um, but I do think it was just worth after, you know, going through how completely wrong Hitchens was in his response to 9-11 and the global war mm -hmm. on terror. Just that one line to pull out and say, let's just think about this claim, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I think the, 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 the takeaway from the piece and you know, pretty much from everything I've ever written is that I don't agree with that critique, but I just thought it was worth considering. Okay. So anyway, if I uh, tried to present, uh, you know, a, a, a nuanced view of what I think is going on on the left, left, at least in part, I can't speak for them. But uh, let me put it this way, you know, on the left, left, it's very common to use the word empire. And you probably do this, too, to describe mm -hmm. U.S. foreign policy. It, it you know, it's imperialistic and, and the whole the whole thing around the globe, you know, global war on terror and so on. Mm -hmm. It's all imperialism and kind of that's one reason it should be viewed skeptically to say the least. Mm -hmm. I tend to avoid that word just because I don't, when I when I look at how it happens, although I oppose almost all the same things that the left left opposes, yeah. uh, I, I don't see the conscious, quite the same conscious design that the mm -hmm. word imperialism suggests. Mm -hmm. um, and, but 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 I understand in the case of Ukraine how it looks like that and how it looks like that in general, right? I, I mean, and and what I mean is if you, if you go back twenty five years uh, ago and look at the beginning of NATO expansion, you know, everyone, I mean, lots of responsible figures in Washington are warning against this. Mm -hmm. Um and Clinton does it anyway, then there's this big threshold uh, in uh, around 2007, 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, Putin gives a speech at the Munich Security Con uh, Conference in 2007, warning us that this is driving him nuts. Yeah. NATO expansion and more broadly, U.S. law breaking. Okay, mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the, he, he mentions Iraq. He mentions the mm -hmm. intervention in uh, Kosovo which unlike the invention in Bosnia did not have UN Security uh, Council right. authorization. Right. And of course had driven Russia crazy partly because of its relation to Serbia. And he's up on all this stuff. Yeah. You know, he, he it's so funny if you read the speech, it's a manifesto for international law. And at that point, 2007, he wasn't the big violator of it. Right. This is before Georgia and everything else. And that speech is a warning like, yeah. he's saying like the US rampantly violates international law. I really don't like this NATO expansion thing. I mean, it, it, it truly is, mm -hmm. uh, however you want to characterize it, warning, cry for help, something that, that should get people's attention. Then in 2008, George W. Bush 
decides that the NATO expansion we've seen isn't enough, we should right. add Ukraine and Georgia right. to the membership list. Bill Burns, who at that point was the ambassador to Russia, writes a memo to, a memo to Condi Rice, if you want to read between the lines, saying, do not do this. Right. You know, it's like, this isn't just Putin. Ukraine in NATO is a red line for yeah. everyone in the I mean, Russian national security right. elite. Now, separately from that, just to drive the point home, in addition to that email, he sends a, a memo to everyone, joint chiefs and so on, about Ukraine uh, and NATO. And the title of the memo is, Nyet means Nyet. Yeah. Bill Burns is one of the most astute like foreign policy analysts in yeah. this administration. And for my money, should be Secretary of State, but I'll leave that aside. The the uh, so and then you go now. Now, I don't want to uh, go through the whole litany. Uh, so I won't get into the 2014 Maidan revolution, which some people call a, a coup and see uh, a, 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 a strong U.S. hand in. And there's at least some evidence for that. And maybe we'll have time to get in to that. But that's certainly not a crazy view. I'm sure you're aware of the Victoria Newland phone call, mm -hmm. the transcript. Yeah. Encourage people to Google it. Um, it goes it goes on and on um and up to november of last year as you may be aware biden for whatever reason russia is massing troops and people are starting to say wait is this serious and biden chooses that moment to sign a document reaffirming with ukraine uh you know military solidarity and and the plan to uh ultimately include them in nato Meanwhile, for the last few years, we've been funneling weapons into NATO, uh, into, I'm sorry, weapons into Ukraine, Na advisors. And as Putin has said, Ukraine, he thinks, was becoming a de facto member of NATO and seemed to him, he says, more and more threatening. Now, let's leave aside the question of whether NATO was the issue for Putin. It's very complicated. There certainly are other factors. There's his psychology. There's all that. And, and whether negotiating about NATO could have helped. All, I, all I'm saying is, I don't. I, I understand people who say, "Wait a second! Everything leading up to this makes it plausible to think that the U.S. cynically sees this as a proxy war in a Cold mm -hmm. War, the way in a superpower struggle, the way it, it definitely saw the Afghanistan war mm -hmm. when we intentionally drew Russia in." Mm -hmm. I, it to me, it, it. I have no idea. Again, I don't attribute as much conscious imperial intent to U.S. foreign policy as the left left does. But to me, I, I totally get if they look at all this and say, wait a second, this is a proxy war. We're fighting Russia to the last Ukrainian. I'm just not going to support it. Again, I don't oppose all military aid to Ukraine, but I get that worldview. I didn't think you totally you know, grappled with it in the piece. I, di I didn't think you totally credited it yeah. and grappled with it. So here's no, your chance I mean, to grapple. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot in there. Um, let me, I mean, going back to the history of the relationship, yes, I mean, everything you said about, you know, just first of all, Bill Burns, his book, The Back Channel, is absolutely one of the best books about U.S. foreign policy I've ever read. I encourage everyone to read it. He's easily um, one of, if not our our, our greatest diplomat. And he's, um, he's now CIA director, of course. People, CIA people director and also unofficial envoy for all the difficult things. Um, you know, when you talked about last fall, October, November, um, that he was one of the people that was dispatched by the administration to go speak to Putin and speak to the Russians and try to figure out what the heck was going on and what could be done about it. Um, so again, we can come back to that, but sure. I think that adds to, you know, there were, I mean, in my view, it is clear that the Biden administration wanted to avert this. 
um, given what their actual priorities were, it was not this. And we see the impacts of this in terms of inflation, in terms of the global food crisis run down the list. This is not something they wanted to have to deal with right now. Um, but yet we can come back to that. I mean, what you know, what you laid out as the history of NATO expansion, you know, Putin's warnings in Munich and Bush's uh, statement in, in, in Bucharest, I think it was absolutely, I mean, to the shock and consternation of his own administration. Um, but I would go back even farther. I, you know, during the 90s, let's let's remember the steps the United States took to create the conditions for Putin, right? Um, this is, you know, the neoliberal shock therapy that was applied uh, to the post-Soviet Union, to Russia, um, that enabled the rise of this new class of, of oligarchs who ultimately, you know, kind of landed on Putin as a suitable successor to, to Yeltsin. And he soon turned the tables and brought them under his control versus being under their control, which is where we are now. And it's interesting because I went back and I don't want to kind of get too off track here, but as as I was thinking about this conversation, I went back and looked at some of your writing on progressive realism, which, you know, as you know, meant a great deal to me, you know, going back to 2006 when you first wrote the piece in the New York Times. Um, I think I was in grad school at the time and I was like, yes, this makes a lot of sense to me. And it's, um, you know, it's it's a general tendency that I, I identify with. Um, you know, but I, I two things about that. One is I, I think my view reflects kind of the principles that are laid out in what I understand as the principles of progressive realism. But I do think, you know, looking back at that piece and some of the, the writing since then, I think it does one one place I think we, we might agree that it didn't quite get it is on this issue of kind of global economics and free trade, the WTO. Um, I think it gave the WTO uh, uh, too much credit in terms of, you know, enhancing freedom and liberalism and, and, and all the good things. And I do think, you know, U.S. policy toward post-Soviet Russia is a reflection of that. The idea was that, well, we're going to we're going to privatize all these state industries. And then ultimately, because things happen and this is just how economics works, people will get rich. And it didn't work that way. And that wasn't the only place it didn't work that way. In turn, it gave instead it gave rise to an authoritarian government. And that's happened a lot of different places. Um, but yes, even if we grant and I do both in the in the New Republic piece, but also in the foreign affairs piece I published a couple of months before that, you know, Putin's concerns, grievances, whatever you want to call them about NATO are not just made up. He did not invent them yesterday uh, in advance of the invasion. Um, they are, you know, we can argue about them. Other people can disagree with them. But the fact of the matter is American officials have been warning about this, as you said, going back to the 90s. Um, there's, uh, you know, for people who, who study the Russian political system, this is a real red line, especially Ukraine, um, uh, uh, for NATO, uh, I mean, for, for, for Russia. But I think my, my question in the piece was, okay, I think it is, we can acknowledge that we can acknowledge as I do with that, the way the United States went about adding more countries to NATO, like literally right up to Russia's doorstep was unwise. Um, but where does that put us on the eve of the invasion? And again, I'm not saying you discount it. You don't. I think we have to have both of these discussions at the same time. But I also think this kind of gets at what I see as the challenge, you know, as I've continued to see some of the responses and you ask, you know, you know, whether those responses, especially the disagreements and criticisms were helpful. And, and here's where I think they really have been, because as I see the you know the kind of responses and criticisms of the piece the kind of challenge that has sort of coalesced in my mind is can we acknowledge that a policy of military support 
is correct while at the same time continuing to challenge the broader foreign policy conception. Can we, you know, in, to use the immortal words of candidate Barack Obama, can we change the mindset that got us into war in the first place while still supporting this one particular policy area that involves supporting a war? Right. Well, one problem with that is that, I mean, one thing that deepens the challenge is that um, if you try to point to these things we did mm -hmm. that unnecessarily and unwisely made this war more likely, in my view, people take that as excusing Putin, completely mm -hmm. absolving him of responsibility. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a worldview that actually kind of handles that in the sense that I, I put such emphasis on international law that mm -hmm. I can say, look, Putin's the one who invaded a sovereign country. That's a violation of international law. NATO expansion isn't. By and large, the things we, we did aren't, although God knows we've uh, violated international law time and time again. And I, and I want to get back to that. Um, but but, but I, I have my way of saying Look, we can talk about all the all the mistakes the U.S. made and how if it hadn't made them, there might not be a war without removing the blame from Putin's shoulder. Mm -hmm. So let's have that discussion. Unfortunately, yeah. almost nobody except the people on the left left want to have that discussion yeah. because it is taken as as absolving Putin of blame. Mm -hmm. And so, like you said, well, can't we do both? Well, Matt, apparently yeah. not. And, yes. and no, but this is a big problem. And this is why I just I just keep going back and saying, no, I'm sorry. I know it's a bad look. I know you're going to mm -hmm. say we're reciting Putin talking points and all that. But if we don't talk about this now, when there are tens of thousands of dead people and millions yeah. of refugees and all of that might have been prevented, if the U.S. in various ways weren't such an irresponsible superpower, when are we going to talk about it? Yeah. You're just trying to put it down the memory hole. Yeah. And, 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 and so, again, there's another sense in which I identify with the impulse on the left left. You know, enough. At some point, mm -hmm. we have to stop and say, no, we're not going to continue to say, yeah, make another blunder. And then later, we'll talk about all the blunders you keep making. You know, at some point, we have to stop and talk about it. I'm yeah. not among those saying that means we yeah. can't give Ukraine any support. Yeah. But I, I'm kind of at, at a loss. I'm kind of, a, yeah. you know, what, what, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. No, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I, I see that happening. And, you know, I absolutely reject, you know, this, you know, the, this tendency to accuse people of, you know, reciting Putin talking points. I think it's ridiculous. I mean, listen, I've not in the in, 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 you know, in the practice of defending Josh Hawley about a lot, but I did, you know, defend Josh Hawley from the White House's accusation on just that score, um, or, you know, early on in the invasion where he, he made some criticisms of, of policy and he was attacked from the White House for, you know, some variation on repeating Putin talk. Which I think that's totally bullshit. It's 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 irresponsible. But yeah, but, you know, Newsflash, we do have a, a pretty dumb foreign policy discussion, 
in Washington um, that does not make room for a lot of nuance, especially in the midst of a, a situation like this. But I agree 100%. We need to have both of these discussions. And it's not just with Russia and Ukraine, whether we're talking about Iran, understanding the history of the U of U.S.-Iran enmity. This has not just been Iran doing bad things and U.S. responding. U.S. has played a role here, whether we're talking about, you know, U.S. and, and Central and South America. You know, we're talking about how we respond to some of these governments the role the United States has played going back decades, contributing to political violence and corruption and all these things. So yes, I, I totally acknowledge the problem you're talking about, but I think it's just up to us um, to try and foster a more responsible, serious conversation about this. And yeah, it is a big challenge. Okay. Um, let me just say as a kind of a footnote, you did, I mean, you don't accuse anybody of reciting Putin talking points. You did uh, single out uh, the gray zone in a way that, uh, some people could be taken as trying to kind of marginalize it, remove it from the conversation. Um, that's a that's a longer uh, discussion. I mean, my own view is we should be very careful. If, if we're going to say somebody's beyond the pale, we should document it and be very, very careful about it. But but I, I, I and I'll let you say more about this if you want. But 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 one thing I just want to quickly say uh, is Aaron Mate, who is one of the gray zone people, wrote a, a piece I recommend for Real Clear Investigations. It's part of Real Clear Politics, which I think you'll agree is not some kind of left-wing organization. And, and, and it, it's, uh, it's about Syria and, and how we got into the Syria war. And, and I mention it, it, it it's, it's really a, a good piece of, of reporting, I think. I mean, I'm sure people could reply and challenge and so on, and I'm not an expert, but it's worth reading. And the reason I bring it up is I was just reading it the other day, and at the very beginning, when you see how automatic the impulse of the U.S. was to do something, to change the regime, to get involved in Syrian politics, and this, this was beyond like, oh, there are these uh, protesters who are being brutalized, which there were, and, the, and there were horrible things being done by the Syrian regime, which, which there definitely were. But you can see that the impulse was deeper than that, and, and, and I think probably precedes that. And I was just like... Is there some residual Cold War impulse that we just never got out of our system? Is the foreign policy bureaucracy actually? This is a question for you because you're in DC. You're you're part of this. Is it full of? Is the whole foreign policy establishment just full of people who were infused with a kind of a Cold War mentality? Where like there is some kind of global death struggle going on here, and we so so and every country is a piece of turf. It's a piece on the chessboard, and we must do something. You, you know what I mean? I mean, this kind of uh, endlessly interventionist impulse, uh, in this case, sending weapons to Syria very early. Uh, mm -hmm. And we know how Syria wound up. And, mm -hmm. and by the way, this is another thing on the left. Like they say, we have an experience with sending a ton of weapons into a country. It's Syria. Take a look at Syria now. Mm -hmm. and, and, right. and, and so there's that. I, the, now, the parallels are not uh, are not precise in a lot of ways. I, I had a conversation with Josh Landis that I think is worth listening to. You people can Google it on YouTube. But um, uh, anyway, respond to whatever of that you want to respond to. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. First, just on Syria, I think Syria is an important um, comparison. I do. Yes, there are real differences. I mean, an internal insurgency against a government is obviously different from a country responding or to an invasion. Um, but still, I think. Syria is something I I've never been satisfied with with my own response or certainly with the United States response. I think uh, speaking as a progressive, seeing the disaster in Syria 
you know, I, I have thought a lot and, and tried to read a lot about how we could have responded differently earlier, later in the middle to create a different outcome. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I can't say that I've arrived at a satisfactory answer. I think there's been a number of good um, work done. I mean, there was the, the U.S. Holocaust Museum's report that that I think was very interesting that that looked at, you know, another, you know, a number of key kind of decision points that were made along the way and whether different decisions might have produced a different outcome. It found, you know, not very likely. Others obviously have a very different view, and I and I understand that. So I do think it's worth thinking back and comparing those. I think that's totally appropriate. Um, but to your question about the sort of interventionism that that drives or characterizes a lot of, of, of DC foreign policy thought, I mean, the way I would put it is, you know, American exceptionalism is a is kind of a it's 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 a religious confession. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the, you know, it's a belief that one must have. It's one of the, the, the tenets of, of the, the priestly order of American foreign policy. Um, it's something that simply must, must be sort of, and it, it expresses itself in various ways, but in, in the simplest terms, it's like, you know, America is, is powerful and we use our power for good. And sometimes we make mistakes, but when we make mistakes, it's almost always for the right reasons. And yes, mistakes were made and yada, yada, yada. And within that yada, yada, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people killed and millions of people displaced and, you know, run down the, the list. But I think it's just that belief in the inherent, not only goodness, but necessity of American global power and global leadership. Now, I think that has been changing. I think over the past, you know, especially five years, uh, there has been some, there have been some very very important interventions in this, to this debate. Uh, but in general, um, in terms of how how one advances and makes a career in American foreign policy, um, there are certain beliefs to which one must continue to ascribe. Okay, um, the. I want to talk about what I worry is a uh, the framing of a new Cold War. And I've worried, and I think I may have expressed this to you in the past, that Bernie uh, kind of somewhat embraces this framing. And, and that is the democracy versus autocracy thing. This administration is just hell-bent, it seems to me, on turning global politics into a monarchian struggle between democracies and autocracies, I consider that a completely self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, they just had this uh, summit of the Americas that was something of a fiasco in LA because the Biden team insisted on not inviting these evil dictators from Cuba and Venezuela and so on. As a result, the, the president of Mexico said, screw you, I'm not coming, mm -hmm. which is quite the snub. Mm -hmm. uh, big Latin American country. Sing, single most important like country in terms of America's, you know, you know, yeah. single most important impactful country yeah. on America's day-to-day -day lives, Mexico. Yes, and he, he did not come. And, and kind of incidentally, I don't like this framing of the Ukraine war. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. Uh, uh, evil autocracy versus liberal democracy. Well, Ukraine's not the most yeah. liberal democracy in the world. Right. Um, and anyway, I would just rather stick with uh, the, the idea of, you know, it's a violation of international law. But I, I could go on. But, uh, I mean, do you agree that that... What what is your view on the way we should frame this? Yeah. Again, Bernie definitely did talk at least a little this mm -hmm. way during the campaign. Yeah, that, that yeah. authoritarianism, autocracy, or the enemy. I'm wondering, do you think this administration has gone too far? How far do you think we should go on this? Well, I think this administration rhetorically talks about it this way. 
I mean, if you look at their oh, policy, I mean, look no well, further. Well, they had than the summit this, of democracy or whatever it was. Right, called. no, no, but I'm saying look no further than the upcoming, you know, trip to Saudi Arabia. If you want to know how seriously <laughs> they take the actual democracy versus autocracy framework beyond just rhetoric. Um, now, going back to how Senator Sanders has approached it, yeah, I think you know, going back to the speech he gave in in the fall of 2017, um, he did recognize there is a global struggle taking place, but I think. He has the way he has talked about that, and here I would point to the piece he wrote uh, a year ago in Foreign Affairs on China, is to make clear. And I do think this is a very, very important, um, you know, kind of condition or caveat, whatever, whatever word is. The struggle between democracy and autocracy is taking place within states, in as much as between states, um, and that is very important because if we try to set this up as a new global struggle between democracy and authoritarianism, we will empower the latter. We will empower the latter, both internationally and within our own democracies. Um, and I do, you know, I make this a similar point too in my foreign affairs piece on 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 Ukraine, um, where I call basically for, you know, Ukraine offers a moment to really rethink a foreign policy approach. Um, you know, how I think counterproductive treating, you know, this this kind of dividing the world up with, you know, team democracy over here and team autocracy over there. I mean, not only is it wrong, it will empower those those um, autocratic authoritarian elements. So, yes, I agree. I think it is important to understand that democracies, you know, you know, we should have um, a way of working together with other democracies to, to protect ourselves, to protect and strengthen our democracies, to protect democratic space, hopefully find ways to, to build and protect democratic space in other countries, though obviously not at the point of a gun, um, but simply dividing up the world into these spheres of, you know, democracy team and team authoritarianism over here is, is, is dumb and it's not going to work. And also, yeah. uh, last point here is, it is so transparently false that it just lead. I think it just undermines our credibility, you know, and people can disagree about how much that matters. I think it matters. I think if you want to be believed, I'm sorry, you cannot say we are in a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism. Oh, got to go meet with Mohammed bin Salman right now. Right. And I think this is another thing that informs the left left reaction to Ukraine is because of the way the administration is sometimes framing it, and a lot of people are framing it as like, oh, it's liberal democracy versus authoritarian autocracy. Um, it just seems like another Cold War. We've been here yeah. before, um, and, uh, and and I think that's part of the deal. Now, in terms of uh, going Can forward- I make and, a yeah, quick, sure. just a quick follow-up point? I'd also say, like, I understand, like, we need to- work with <laughs> imperfect and a lot of times bad regimes to achieve certain goals. So again, my question would be not that you never talk to these folks. And this goes for Putin as well. And I, I would note here, maybe we'll get to this later, but it is very interesting to me that like, you know, finding some compromise with Putin is appeasement, but finding some compromise with MBS is just statecraft. I think that that's a contradiction that we need to explore a little bit more. In both cases, my question would be, okay, what are you getting out of it? Mm -hmm. You know, what are you getting? You know, I don't, I'm not one of these folks who says, no, appeasement never works. No, of course, Churchill himself recognized, quote, that appeasement has its place in all policy. The question is, what are you getting for it? Right. And this comes up with me uh, uh, in, in a question I was going to ask you anyway, um, which is kind of where we go from here. It sounds like 
you do think, I mean, my reaction to the to all the military aid we've given them is, well, one thing I definitely wouldn't have done is given it to them with no strings attached. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to have an understanding with Ukraine mm-hmm. about how far this is going to go. Mm-hmm. Because if you really are seriously talking about trying to take back every inch of turf occupied by Russia, A, you're crazy. It ain't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And B, or at least it won't happen without uh, incurring massive risk of an apocalyptic outcome, okay? Yeah. And, and so we, we need to have some kind of understanding. Now, publicly, Biden is saying, oh, no, the, the, and this has been the line all along. Who are we to tell the Ukrainians what to do? Well, when I give somebody $40 billion, yes. I'm the person to tell them that if they <laughs> want the $40 billion, we need to have an understanding. Now, that is right. Uh, so what is, do you want to talk about that? Like where what we sure. should be doing now? Yeah. Well, no, I, I also think, you know, Ukraine has been asking for a lot more than they've been getting, you know, all along. Um, and here, so yes, I totally agree. And I literally, I write specifically in the piece. It's not just up to Ukrainians to make the decisions to the extent that we are providing this support, not just in weapons, but in intelligence and, and diplomatic and political support. The United, you know, the American people are implicated in this war. And therefore, we have a reasonable expectation of some influence on its outcome. Um, the question, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot in there what that looks like. Um, but I also think, you know, Biden go to his New York Times piece where he laid out what the United States, the outcome we would like to see. Um, you know, I, I don't want to hide behind, oh, things are going on behind the scenes. I and mean, it's one of those kind of Washington tricks. But I do think there is, you know, considerable efforts at diplomacy going on behind the scenes. I mean, one can argue this should be more public, more more out there. Um, I, I would probably agree with some of that. Um, but, you know, let's look all in terms of how Ukraine wants this to end. It, it, you know, I, I look at, you know, kind of the documents that came out of the Istanbul uh, meetings uh, early on. I think there were a set of pretty far reaching proposals. I mean, these were not set in stone, but they were offers for some very serious um, agreements that would, it seems to me, address some of Putin's, you know, stated concerns uh, in a big way. And they that's not really uh, gone anywhere. So, it, you know, it seems to me that Ukraine, more than anyone, would like this to end. Um, mm-hmm. I think, what, what does that end look like? I mean, if, if you're just going to, you know, people have raised and Kissinger raised and um, this idea that, well, we got to, you know, essentially just offer to give Putin a, a chunk of eastern Ukraine and, and that if that will end this. And again, going back to my question about appeasement, it's like, okay, well, it, what, what would we get for that? I mean, do we get a pause and then Putin comes back for more war later? I think those are the kinds of questions we should be asking, not necessarily to reject these kind of compromises out of hand. Um, mm-hmm. My question is just like, okay, does that just get us more war later or what? Right. And and one way I would put that, I mean, what, the way I think about that is also like, what do we get out of not appeasing? Um, appe- I, uh, I put appeasement in quotes. <laughs> it's a Say appeasement, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a word that's usually used as as a weapon rhetorically in right. ways I don't and like. And but, that's part of the problem because but yeah. again, because we're we appease people all the time. Yeah. We just don't but, call it that. But another, what do we get? Um, out of refusing to give him any positive reinforcement for the invasion. Obviously, mm-hmm. to the extent that he yeah. gains land, that's a yeah. form of positive mm-hmm. reinforcement. And, yeah. and what, what is the, uh, the benefit of denying him that at all costs? Now, 
in principle, I would say a big benefit of that could be you're upholding international law. Mm -hmm. You're upholding the norm that people will not violate. Uh, well, uh, the norm of complying with the law that people will not violate the sovereignty of other nations by invading them. One could say that. However, mm -hmm. given the fact that the U.S. insists on repeatedly defying that law, and by the way, is doing it right now, our troops in Syria are illegal. That's a violation of international law. The Biden administration shows no signs of being any more serious about complying with this part of international law than any past administration, at least so far. We'll see. I mean, they and, our, and, our, and our partner Israel is essentially doing in the occupied territories what Russia claims to want to do in the occupied right. territories of Ukraine, which is to destroy uh, the Palestinians as an independent political entity and take their land. And we well, refuse to do anything about it. I mean, in a way, a more clear cut case is the routine uh, Israeli attacks on Syria. I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the Palestinian mm -hmm. land, I mean, uh, well, we can get into that, but that's also mm -hmm. a kind of a, that's a human rights issue. It's a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, it's an international law issue too. And that's not, the point I'm making in right. terms of international right. law with regard to occupied territory. Uh, it's it's pretty straightforward. Right. Oh, oh totally. It's, it's a, uh, there's a violation of international law going on. We could, we could split hairs about yeah. which part, but, um, yeah. but anyway, well, I, the reason I want to say that is because, you know, when you point, when I point, and we a lot of people point to past and ongoing American violations of international law, of course, you know, what the hawks say is, oh, that's what about ism. I mean, first mm -hmm. of all, pointing to hypocrisy is a generally good thing. That's what keeps yeah. systems of norms and laws robust. Yeah. Any moral yeah. system depends on the idea that you don't get to preach to other people and complain about their violations if you're committing the same violation. Yeah. But beyond that, what I want to say is, uh, if we had not been so hypocritical. If we had nurtured this norm of complying with the uh, international, the prohibition on invading other countries, and so there was this chance now of finally making this prevail globally, then there would be more upside to mm -hmm. at all costs denying Putin yeah. any victory. Yeah. But until we are ready to do our part to uphold the, that norm of compliance with that law, there's just less upside. It's just, it's just less. It's not, my point is it's not only hypocritical. It also means there's just less benefit. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm torn. I, I, I hate to see people get positive reinforcement for invading countries. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, that's my line. Right. I also hate to, to even, I would have regretted the positive reinforcement that successful negotiation would have done in the sense of reinforcing him for massing troops on a border, yeah. even though that's not illegal. But I right. thought we should have been uh, done a much more serious job of that. Now, you disagree. Maybe we should briefly yeah. uh, visit that. I mean, I yeah. think it's straightforward. Derek, is it Chole or Chole? How does he Chole. Okay. Yeah. It's white. I'm sorry. Chole. Okay. So he's a pretty high ranking state department mm -hmm. official. He just flat out said a month or two ago, NATO, we told the Russians, NATO, the NATO expansion issue was not on the table. That's consistent with what Putin himself said right before the invasion. He said they did offer kind of moratorium and so on, but, but in terms of any kind of permanent stop, no. And, and so this isn't enough. Uh, I, we don't know that that, that would have stopped the invasion, but if you're not willing to go that far, I think you, you haven't gone very far. Now, you seem to think we kind of did go that far or what? I think, and admittedly, we got ourselves because of Bush's 
you know, insistence, public insistence that yes, we're going to get Ukraine into NATO. And we put our, we got ourselves into a very kind of tough and frankly stupid uh, <laughs> diplomatic conundrum, right? Where there was concern about, maybe it was overstated, but concerned about now having stated this, we don't want to just shut the door on anyone joining, but there was a, a general understanding that this was not going to happen. Um, but in addition to what Chole said, I think there's also, you know, you know, the, the statements that we saw from both Macron and Schultz, which I recommend, which I reference in, in the piece where they went and met with Putin and they came out and they did, you know, did they come out and speak to the press and say explicitly, we agreed that Ukraine would not join NATO? No, they didn't. But I think in diplomatic terms, they made pretty darn clear that this was something that was under discussion in an effort to avert this invasion, an effort to address Putin's stated concerns. Now, if you can, you can say that wasn't enough. Okay. But I, I tend to think, in terms of the, the you know, how 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 diplomacy is handled, um, it 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 was pretty clear. But I would add this point too, is that Putin understood that with part of Ukraine occupied by U.S. affiliated, I'm sorry, Russian affiliated forces, he had a veto over Ukraine's NATO membership. Period. Because part of the conditions for joining NATO is that you cannot have any unresolved border disputes. So to the extent that Russian forces were occupying parts of Ukraine, he had that in perpetuity. He understood that as a as a just a practical matter. So the idea that if only we'd gone as far as offering these hard guarantees, no Ukraine in NATO, I, I don't know. It, it, it just I, I'm just unconvinced that that would have, especially in light of what Putin has said uh, leading up to that and subsequently about his ultimate goals um, for Ukraine and, and, and for, for, for the kind of new Russian imperium or whatever term one wants to use. The idea that just making this promise would have averted this, I, I am not convinced at all by that. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I'd say the, the the Russian, the de facto Russian occupied, Russian controlled parts of Ukraine, um, I think he he saw as kind of under threat. I mean, of course, I don't approve of them having been mm -hmm. occupied in, in the first place or Crimea having been seized. On the other hand, if we did have time to revisit 2014, mm -hmm. I, I'd say uh, our role, our very assertive role in that regime change was extremely ill-advised given yeah. the obvious way he was going to perceive it and think about Crimea, given that a very important naval base yes. is in Crimea. Leave, yeah, leave I mean, all that I aside. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't agree ahead. with the talk, idea talk that it was Talk about 2014 a, if you want. I mean. Yeah, no, no, I'll just say briefly, I don't agree that it was a coup. I certainly think that, you know, as, you know, there's evidence the U.S. was, was you know, playing a, a, a let's say, provocative role uh, in, in what was going on there. Um, I think that's that's a longer conversation. I think that, you know, the, the leaked you know, the leaked um, recording of, of, of uh, Victoria Newland. you know, I, I listen to that and I absolutely can, can sympathize or empathize with how Putin and, uh, and Russians might perceive that because she is literally picking the new leaders of Ukraine at the same time, knowing how American diplomats talk, they talk a lot of shit. And, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, talking tough on the phone is, is I'm not super surprised by that. But again, I'm not going to downplay it as, as provocative. It certainly was. Um, yeah, but she has a plan, and she yeah. and as they end the phone call, they're planning yeah. to operationalize it. I'm, I'll mm -hmm. call so and so. You you do this, and the guy they pick winds up being the guy who yeah. won. So who knows? Yeah. 
Right. But anyway, the I, I think Putin. No, I, I think the last point I would make in that is like I do think just calling it a kind of U.S. backed coup, I, I think just kind of denies a lot of other things that were going on in Ukraine there and how that was driven. Oh, there was there was by Ukrainians. there was popular support. So, there was there yeah, was some right. substantial degree of popular support right. for the revolution. I don't use the term coup, but anyway, yeah, uh, I, I I don't approve of. Uh, what we did uh, anyway. That, all that aside, on the on the Russia-controlled kind of territory, I think Putin saw that as under increasingly under siege. More and more mm -hmm. weapons coming in. Yeah. Uh, the Ukrainians are, you know, very active on that front, and they seem yeah. to want to roll it back. So uh, yeah. again, I don't think he should have occupied it in the first place. But I think that yeah. was on his mind. The lat. The, but the other thing I want to say is, you know, you're. It, it sounds to me like first of all, you're not claiming that America said, we will put on paper that NATO will never expand, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're not making that claim, right? No. Okay, and, no. And, and you're saying, well, we kind of assured him, you know, quietly the equivalent of that will happen. Well, A, if I were him, I might want to get it on paper for practical purposes, but mm -hmm. there's something else. I, I think you just have to take into account individual psychology, national psychology, Nations and people want respect, maybe mm -hmm. especially acutely if they are a declining superpower that, mm -hmm. that would like to rescue a former greatness. And I, I, I think NATO expansion was partly an issue of respect. I think Putin, mm -hmm. who, of course, you know, autocrats uh, come to identify very closely with the states. I think he took it personally as a slight, a sign of disrespect. I think some Russians did, and I think all that is involved as well. But I, I don't want to go off on mm -hmm. uh, on that too much. I want to. I, I think you've got to go at the top of the hour, so I should. I've talked a lot. I should just give you a chance mm -hmm. to say anything else you want to say. I, I have one more thing I want to say, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> so, 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 if you, so if you could hold it to about five seconds, that would be great. <laughs> no, go ahead. Oh, it's just an asterisk on the WTO thing. I did definitely mm -hmm. say. Uh, naive things about uh, the WTO. But but one thing I've always said, I mean, we should have bargained harder with China on their entry. But one thing I've always said about these multilateral trade agreements, including NAFTA, is the goal should be to turn them into instruments for uh, left of center policy. They yeah. should ultimately include, uh, you know, labor issues, environmental issues in yeah. an actually meaningful way, because if you don't address those things at the multinational level, in some cases, they're going to be hard to address. At all. That's, yeah, that's my I, I agree 1000%. And I would say it's something very uh, current on that is the WTO ongoing debates over the IP waiver for the TRIPS waiver for um, vaccines, which is something I think the WTO is completely failing on. Mm -hmm. um, this is over, I think it was October, November 2020 when this withdraw was first proposed by India and South Africa. And it's astonishing to me. Um, or not astonishing, it's just depressing. I mean, because in my view, I mean, the fact that this has been taking so, so long um, on an issue of just, I mean, obvious uh, global security concern is just shows, I think, you know, these are the interests that the WTO exists to protect. Um, you know, global North profits over global South lives. And I, and I do agree that we have to change that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, well, now, now more broadly, I certainly agree. I certainly agree. More broadly, is there anything you want to say in closing about your argument, mm. your ways it may have been misconstrued on the left, or, or things you might uh, wish you'd said differently, or anything else? Um, I don't think so. I, I will just repeat. You know, I appreciated the the majority of <laughs> of the responses. You know, some of which I, I I don't you know 
some of you know some of the more vituperative uh, attacks, you know, whatever. Um, but I do think there has been you know a lot of good faith disagreement, and I appreciate that, and I look forward to to, to the opportunity to to engage uh, with some of some of those folks as time goes on. Because I again, I think the reason I thought it was important to weigh in here is because there are some pretty foundational issues here with regard to how at least I define what a progressive foreign policy is and how the United States should operate in the world. Okay. Well, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and um, tell Bernie I said hi. Uh, and, you know, should he wind up in the White House and should you not be available to serve as Secretary of State? I just want you to not <laughs> lose track of my name. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm ready to serve if called. Uh, but 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 thanks a lot, Matt. I um I, I feel a little bad about the extent to which I've about how much I've talked. But I kind of when I read your piece, I thought I'd like to see a debate between Matt and somebody on the left. Left. I'm not exactly that, but I thought I I guess I went into this thinking my kind of role is to be a, a surrogate. Uh, you know, a client state for the left. Yeah. Left. No, I appreciate it, Bob. I really enjoyed it. Um, let let's do this again before too long. I, I would love to just tell me, uh, just say the word when you're ready. I know you're busy, but uh, I, I will let you uh, get back to, uh, to, to DC. I don't want to know what goes on even. So <laughs> I'm not going to ask, but I know it's, um, I know it's stuff you're better at than I would be. So thanks, Matt. Mm -hmm. All right. Great to see you. Same here.